You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Good morning, Redeemer. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to have to warn you a little bit. I mean, hearing uh, Andrea and Kevin go all Aretha Franklin and, and, and Marvin Gaye is like, I make a man want to preach, right? Um, holy smokes. Um, so get ready. Buckle up. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to, 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 John, turn to John 11. We'll be looking at John 11 today. So uh, I have the privilege of serving as one of, as the kind of the primary uh, teacher at a ministry that we have here at, at Parsons House, uh, which is an assisted living place, and we do a, we do a chapel service there every week. Um, and I have had, over the last six weeks, I've, I've had the privilege of examining this text of John 11 in, in, in great depth. I went in there thinking I was going to kind of spend a week on it. The more I got studying, I was like, man, this, I can't do this in one week. And then, um, then I was like, man, I can't do this in two weeks. Um, and then six weeks later, I was like, yeah, okay, I could probably still keep going. Uh, amazing treasures in this remarkable story of Lazarus. Now, don't panic. I'm not, I'm not going to re-preach all six messages today. Um, but what I do want to do is tease out what I believe to be is the kind of overarching theme of this event. And I think that this can be found in the first four verses. So as is our custom, if you're, if you're able, please stand for the, for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Beginning in, in verse 1, it says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Father, thank you for your word. And particularly today, we thank you for the inspiring the Apostle John to record this remarkable event that we will examine today. God, would you use the words of this text to open our eyes, to be awed by your glory once again, and to dedicate our lives to proclaiming the truth of your gospel boldly and passionately. Your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So earlier this week, I was uh, I was talking with Pastor Skip, and we were kind of comparing notes, going back about his, his message last week and mine coming up this week. And um, and then out of the blue, he asked me. He said um, he he said, "Could you summarize what I wanted to convey in a single sentence?" I thought, okay, I'll take the challenge. So I thought about it for a minute, and I said, it's all about the glory of God. And to which he said, okay, that'll, that'll preach. He said, but just do this. He says, make sure you take the word, the glory of God, and, and make sure you 
bring it out of the theological clouds and, and bring it down to a definition that, that people can relate to. So I, I took him to heart. He skips a wise man. And so I started thinking deeply about this. And, um, and then I thought of it in relation to this text. And, and I determined that maybe the, the clearest, simplest definition of God's glory is this. God is great and God is good. Now, I can imagine some of you may be thinking right now, awesome, I just gave up my morning and all the things I could be doing to come here so you could tell me something that I have heard and prayed since I was two years old. Yep, I have. But hear me, before you check out or walk out, let me ask you a couple of questions. That, that may challenge your confidence and your grasp of this basic theological statement. How's your prayer life? If your answer is something less than, I rejoice always and pray without ceasing, then I would contend that it is because you don't rightly understand God's greatness or his goodness. How is your time in God's word? If you can't honestly say like the prophet Jeremiah, your words are what sustain me. They are food to my hungry soul. They bring joy to my sorrowing heart and delight me. If you can't say that, I would contend that again, it's because you minimize God's greatness and his goodness. When was the last time you found yourself questioning why God would allow something to happen? Or why he didn't answer your prayer the way that maybe you wanted or expected. How much of your life is filled with fear, anxiety, worry, or anger? When it comes to sharing your faith, can you say like Jeremiah, sometimes I tell myself not to think about you, Lord, or even mention your name, but your message burns in my heart and bones, and I cannot keep silent. Now, my intent this morning is not to, to riddle you with, with guilt or shame, but you see, the fact is that really none of us have a very good grasp on God's goodness or his greatness. The scripture says, now all we see of God is like a cloudy picture in a mirror. And that's why the phrase, oh, you of little faith, was uttered so often by Jesus, and it was mostly to his disciples. You see, the story of John 11 is Jesus, in light of his impending crucifixion, wanting to fuel the faith of his followers as well as fuel the hostility of his enemies by displaying his greatness and his goodness in a way that neither, nobody has ever seen. And with that in mind, let's look at the, uh, what we'll call scene one of our story, which we'll call the message. As the story opens, we, we learned that one of Jesus' dear friends named Lazarus is from the town of Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, and he's, he's severely ill. 
So ill, in fact, that his, his sister decided to send a message to Jesus. And the message is short, but the point is obvious. And I think it tells us a lot about the sisters. Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, even though they don't specifically make a request of Jesus, I think the intent is pretty clear. And it's confirmed later in the story. Basically, their message was, Jesus, your friend is in serious trouble. Please come here and heal him. Now, this short message reveals, I think, that they had a pretty good understanding of both the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. They sent the message because they clearly believed that Jesus was great. He was great enough to heal their brother. And by adding the one that you love, I don't think that was being manipulative. I think it indicated that they believed that he was good enough that he would, he would want to do it. So I think the, the sister's message is, is pretty understandable. It's Jesus' response in verse 4 and 5 that kind of makes us scratch our head. Looking back at verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Hmm. What? Why would Jesus say that the sickness will not end in death when we know full well that Lazarus is going to die? And why in the world would the text state that, that he loved them so, meaning therefore because he loved him, because he loved them so much, he waited two more days before going to their home. I'm pretty sure that is not the response that Mary and Martha were hoping for, right? But the answer to both the questions is the goal of this whole story. For the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, to understand the method of Jesus' seeming madness here, you have to understand the context of this story and the timeline of Jesus' ministry. This event occurs just a couple of weeks prior to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and resurrection. The raising of Lazarus is Jesus preparing the hearts and minds of his followers to grasp what is about to happen in Jerusalem in just a couple of weeks. He needs to get their faith out of first gear before he displays his glory in hyper-overdrive. And you see throughout this story, Jesus intentionally tells them what's going to happen, knowing full well it's going to confuse them now, but it'll make perfect sense after it happens. So when he says that the sickness wouldn't end in death, it clearly would confuse them when Lazarus died. And yet it would make perfect sense when the story, in fact, didn't end in death. And likewise, on the surface, let's face it, it sounded outright cruel that Jesus would intentionally postpone going to Bethany for two days. 
But in hindsight, they would see that the delay was in fact an act of amazing love, not cruelty or indifference. With that, let's move to scene two, the disciples. We're going to pick the story up in verse seven, and we're going to read through verse 16. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he had fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we we may die with him. (laughs) Now, there, there actually is kind of a comedic element to this section. When the heart of Jesus and the heart of the disciples collide, like two ships passing in the night, the context of this exchange, of course, we have to look, we look back, goes back to chapter 10, just prior to this, in verse 31, where it says, again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. This just happened in Jerusalem a few days prior. So it's pretty natural to understand the disciples' concern, Correct. I think it's safe to say that the disciples of this moment were questioning at the very least Jesus' goodness. I mean, after all, it wasn't his, just his life that was in jeopardy if they went back to Jerusalem. All of their lives were at risk. And then after explaining to his disciples that, that Lazarus is jet, dead, Jesus then makes this stunning statement. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. What? Did you just say you're glad that Lazarus is dead so that we might believe? Believe what? And of course, if he's already dead, then that's... Well, at least that's one good news. We for sure don't have to go to Jerusalem now, right? No, no, risk, no, no sense risking our lives for, for, for a dead guy. Has anyone here ever found yourself questioning God's plan? Have you found yourself doubting either his greatness or his goodness? And then leave it to, to, to bummer man Thomas to respond by saying, let us go too so that we may die with him. <laughs> but you know, we can learn something here. 
Thomas may be doubting Jesus' goodness and thinking that he's leading them to their death. But the fact that he says, let us go to, also says something about his faith, doesn't it? I mean, let's face it, at least he's, he's a long way from Jonah in the Old Testament who, when God told him to go somewhere, he just said, I ain't going. And we all know how that worked out for him. So before we judge Thomas too harshly, we should ask ourselves, when it seems that God is leading us into difficult, dire situations, do we respond more like Thomas or Jonah? Let's go to scene three. Martha. Picking the story in verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. So here we see Martha's crisis of faith, right? Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I think this statement is a beautiful picture of the human struggle with faith and doubt. Her sister makes the same statement a little later. And in this, what we see is the intense pain that they were feeling and that it was a combination of their brother's death mixed with the hurt and confusion of why Jesus didn't prevent it. They clearly believed that Jesus was great. And he was good. And yet now they're wondering if maybe he isn't as great or as good as they had hoped or thought. Of course, none of us here can relate to that, can we? We've never questioned God's greatness or his goodness when a, when a loved one died amid countless prayers or when tragedy struck, or when evil seemed to triumph over good. The truth is, we can all relate a little to Martha and Mary's frustration and hurt, can't we? Notice that Jesus doesn't get angry with Martha's thinly veiled accusation. Rather, he builds on her her honest declaration of faith in the midst of her doubt. Yet, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. 
You see, she doesn't hide her disappointment in Jesus. But yet in the midst of doubt, she acknowledges that he still seems to have this unique relationship with God that exceeds what anyone else has. And so from that, Jesus begins to gently build her faith and an understanding of his glory by saying, Martha, your brother will rise again. Now, she has no idea, of course, that he means within the hour, as well as in the resurrection at the last day, like she referenced. So he uses the faith that she does have to prepare her for what he is about to do that will launch her faith from one step back to 10 steps forward. I think verse 25 and 26 contained the greatest and most important statement and question of all time. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? And her response, like ours, has to either be one of two things. No, or more like the father in Mark 10 who said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. What a beautiful picture we have in verse 27, that even though Martha had no idea what Jesus was about to do, even in her doubt and disappointment, she could still make the statement of faith, yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Isn't it encouraging that limited faith is still saving faith? Genuine faith is believing at, at any level that Jesus is both great and good. To believe he is neither or that he doesn't exist would be hopeless, wouldn't it? But to believe that he's great but not good, well, that would be terrifying. Just as to believe that he's good but not great would render him inconsequential. But you see, by God's grace, when he opens our eyes to begin to see that he is both great and good, then our life begins a journey of increasing hope and purpose. God, indeed, is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that leads to scene four, God's goodness. Oh, I love this scene. So the story continues with Martha, goes back and she tells Jesus, tells Mary, that her sister Mary, that Jesus has arrived and, and then Mary goes out to see him. And then we're, we're going to pick the story up in verse 32. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. 
Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? So like her sister, we see both Mary's faith and her struggle with faith and her response. She fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, Mary didn't come to Jesus with her finger wagging at his failure to honor their request, did she? She fell at his feet. And in her crisis of faith, she worshiped. There's an honesty here, I think, that we can, we can learn from. We can take comfort in. Mary came to Jesus hurt and confused. And yet at her core, she still knew that Jesus was both good and great. And it's at this point that the second most incredible moment in this story occurs. You see, in the next scene, Jesus will display his greatness in a way that will leave everyone speechless. But in this scene, he displays his goodness in an equally stunning fashion. And we can't overlook this. You see, at, glance, at first glance, verse 33 seems to be Jesus simply showing so empathy and compassion. These are his friends. So he's, he, he's, he's mourning with, by joining Mary in, in her mourning, the death of Lazarus. But at one level, it kind of doesn't make sense because he knew full well that Lazarus' time as a corpse was, was about to take a hiatus. But then as I continue to study and meditate on this section, it, 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 began to, it began to explode off the page in a way that literally brought me to tears as God took my faith to another level. See, through the blessing of, of Logos software, I'm, I'm able to have access to, to multiple translations of the Bible on, on one side of my, my screen and have multiple commentaries and Bible dictionaries on the other. So as I read this verse in, in various translations, I, was, I, I started to get taken back that some of the translations um, seem to interpret the phrase, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled as that he was sort of angry. At first, I, it kind of confused me. And, I, and, and then I read it in the message. And the message put it this way. It says, when Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. And I'm going to be honest, you know, my first thought was that, that Eugene Peters said he had gone totally off the rails on this one. So I decided to go into word study mode. And I found that the, the original Greek word used in, in 33 for deeply moved and troubled in his spirit is the word embrimaumine. Embrimaumine. Defining this, one dictionary wrote, this word, embrimaumai, when used outside the Bible, can refer to the snorting of horses, 
applied to human emotion, it invariably speaks of anger. The word embrimastai indicates an outburst of anger. And any attempt to interpret it in terms of an internal emotional upset caused by grief, pain, or sympathy is illegitimate. Now I'm intrigued. Why in the world would would this situation spark anger in Jesus? I mean, surely he wouldn't be mad at himself for allowing Lazarus to die. I mean, this whole whole event was pre-planned to display God's glory. Surely he wasn't angry at Mary or Martha for their grief or their confusion or doubt. And then I ran across a commentary by John Calvin about this text. And this is what it said. The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. And Mary's grief, she feels, she sees and feels the misery. I'm sorry, in Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but that is incidental. His soul is held by rage. And he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. Like the farmer in his parable, Jesus can pronounce this verdict, An enemy did this. The enemy he has come to slay. Wow. And when I read this, the whole text just jumped into focus. I literally began to weep at the goodness of God. You see, I'm a father to three kids. And I think most of you that, that know me probably would agree that I'm, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. But I guarantee you, if someone messes with one of my kids, you're going to see a whole other side to me. And it won't be pretty. Why? Because my intense love for my kids, no one would question my anger or my qualification of a pastor because of my anger or rage, they would question it if those, those things, if I wasn't consumed with anger, right? And so it is with our Heavenly Father and with Jesus. You see, we like to think of Jesus as the, as the gentle, loving man with, with children all over his lap. And those things are true. But make no mistake. Jesus taking on flesh and coming to earth looks a whole lot more like the movie Taken where Liam Neeson goes all Rambo to rescue his daughter who had been kidnapped by sex traffickers. So praise God, yes, Jesus was filled with an intense rage. Why? Because of his intense love for those he came to save. It kind of changes your inflection when you read the next verse in verse 34, doesn't it? Where have you put him? You see, Jesus is about to send a shot over the bow of the gates of hell to give him a taste of the chaos that he's about to inflict in a couple of weeks. 
And yet his intense love for his people doesn't just produce righteous anger. Verse 35, Jesus wept. You know, there may be no greater display in all of Scripture of the intersection of Jesus being fully man and fully God. It's right here. His divine nature is overwhelmed with anger at the effects of sin on those he loves while his human nature weeps at the pain his friends are going through. We are about to see God's greatness in a moment. But church, please savor the beauty of God's goodness in this remarkable scene. And that takes us to scene five, God's greatness. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's, there's already a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unwrap him and let him go. After four days in a, in a hot desert tomb, clearly the last thing you want to do is open it up. Which, of course, explains Martha's response in verse 39. But of course... This also explains why Jesus waited two days before he came to Bethany. You see, after four days in a tomb, there ain't nobody questioning whether or not Jesus is really dead or not. He's not just dead, as the, as the Wizard of Oz would say, he's really, really dead. I won't gross you out with the details, but let's suffice it to say that the level of decomposition that had already occurred was significant. So imagine what's going on in their minds when Jesus responds in verse 40 by saying, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? No one there had any idea about what, of what was about to happen. But I guarantee you, no one was about to challenge him at that time either. So they covered their noses, and they pulled back the stone. And then what's the first thing he does? He prays. As I read this, I had to think that, you know, probably the main thought in everyone's mind when he started praying was, I sure hope this isn't going to be long. And gratefully, the prayer was surprisingly short. And actually... The prayer was directed more towards the crowd than to his father. 
You see, he wanted the crowd to know exactly what was about to happen here and exactly why it was happening. And of course, that takes us back to the very beginning of the story and the thesis of this message. This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Right before Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he's in essence proclaiming and teaching the people about himself what Paul wrote in Colossians 1, I am the image of the invisible God. Watch. I am the firstborn over all creation. I am before all things. And by me, all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in me and through me to reconcile everything to myself. He's saying, I want you to behold my glory by, un- by beholding my unmatchable greatness and my boundless goodness. Why? Well, the answer we see in, in, we see in John 20, 30 that states so clearly that by believing you may have life in his name. And then, without missing a beat, he shouts in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And imagine for a second the stunned silence on that hillside. Something definitive was about to happen here. It would either prove Jesus' mere humanity and the end of his ministry if nothing happened, or it would prove his absolute divinity beyond any doubt if Lazarus went zombie apocalypse and walked out, which of course he did. And the world has never been the same. And that leads us to scene six, the epilogue. This is perfectly captured in verses 45 and 46. Therefore, Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is the perfect example of what, what J.T. English told us from this stage a couple of weeks ago when he said, there are only two positions men can have before God, holy or hostile. Given the incredible display of God's greatness and goodness, it's not surprising that it says that many saw what he did and believed. What's incredible is the next two words, but some. But some. Which is in direct contrast to those who saw and believed. These people went and told the Pharisees because this event actually fueled their hostility. And like, and, and like their leaders, they actually saw Jesus as a threat that had to be stopped. For many, this event was, was rocket fuel for their faith. But for some, it only served to fuel their hostility. And this is a sad account that we, if you, we won't take time to read it, but you read the rest of the chapter as the chief priests 
and the Pharisees got together. They, they combined the, the Sanhedrin and they finalized their plot to kill Jesus. Musicians and community attendants, you may, please, please come. What an awesome God we serve. He and his sovereignty staged this whole event of calling Lazarus out of a tomb to strengthen the faith of his elect, to be able to withstand the trauma of his coming crucifixion, and to not doubt his absolute power over death. And as for the hostile, he actually used them to accomplish his mission to redeem a people for himself from every tribe and nation through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So today, as we, as we prepare for communion, in light of all that we have heard, I will close by repeating to you the statement and the question that Jesus posed to Martha. It probably is the most important words ever spoken. And I think it's undoubtedly the most important question any of us will ever answer. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Pray with me. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.